Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Our context is this, at the end of chapter 1, or through most of chapter 1 actually, Paul was talking about the foolishness of Greeks and their wisdom and their flowery language. He's going to continue with that theme in chapter 2 and sort of less emphasize the foolishness of the Greeks and the necessity of learning from the Spirit rather than from the foolish philosophers and rhetoricians of the age. So we start now in 1 Corinthians 2.1. When I came to you, brothers, announcing the testimony of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. Now Paul, as it turns out later, we will find out, as he says, he's, he's quoting his enemies at the end of the book here, and he says, they say his speech is despicable, so apparently Paul was not a good speaker. So he didn't come with brilliance of speech like these fancy, sophistical rhetoricians who could speak floridly at length, or wisdom, those are the philosophers. The Greeks were noted for two things. One is their flowery speeches, and their people like Socrates and Plato looking for wisdom. Those two groups of people didn't like each other. I mean, the sophists didn't care about truth. They just cared about fancy speech and winning their legal arguments or their political arguments. The philosophers, on the other hand, didn't care about fancy speech. They cared about finding out what was true. Well, Paul lumps them both together and says, no, I'm not interested in Greek philosophy and I'm not interested in Greek oratory. Remember, the Corinthians are Greek. That's their culture. Paul says, I didn't come that way. What? How, how did he come? He's going to say later, he came to preach Christ crucified, which means Jesus dying on the cross, shedding his blood to forgive you for your sins. That's something that Greek philosophers ain't ever going to understand. Now, he says, when I came to you, brothers, when was that? That was on Paul's initial trip to Corinth, about AD 51, according to the NIV Study Bible. In other words, on the second missionary journey, which is described in Acts chapter 18. So, in other words, when he came is when he established the church. Now, this idea of not speaking with brilliance of speech, Paul's already mentioned in the previous chapter, as I've said earlier. 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to evangelize, not with clever words, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied. Clever words, that's referring to Greek oratory. Now, it could be that Apollos had influenced the Corinthians so that they placed too much emphasis on eloquence. Remember, Apollos apparently was trained as a Greek orator. He was very eloquent. We read that in Acts 18, 24 through 28. And remember, Apollos worked in Corinth. A Jew named Apollos, I'm reading from Acts 18, starting in verse 24. A Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was powerful in the use of scriptures. He was an eloquent man, but he was also fervent in spirit. He loved the Lord and so forth, but he was eloquent. And it's possible he might have emphasized that a little bit too much. That's just speculation. We don't know. But at any rate, Paul says, no, I'm not here trying to speak fancy, fancily, or to speak like a Socrates or Plato. Now, this does not mean that Paul was an unlearned man. He was versed in Jewish learning. As we know, he was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, as John Gill points out. He could quote Greek writers. He, he knew Greek literature, and I'm sure he knew Greek philosophy as well. But here's some examples just in the Gospels, excuse me, just in the New Testament where Paul quotes Greek writers. I'm going to give you three. Titus 1.12. Paul tells Titus, one of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy guttons. Who is Paul quoting? He's quoting Epimenides of Festus, or maybe Canossus, in Crete. Now, the Cretans, or the Athenians, considered that Epimenides was a prophet. That's why Paul says one of their very own prophets. And he had written a treatise called Concerning Oracles, and that is probably where Paul pulled the quote from. Epimenides concerning oracles, he said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And of course, Epimenides should know he was a Cretan himself. <laughs> he was living there. But Paul knew that. How about in Acts 17:28? Here's the second example of Paul quoting a pagan. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. This is Paul in Athens trying to debate the philosophers there. Who was Paul quoting? Well, the first part of the verse... In him we live and move and have our being. That was a quotation from the same Epimenides of either Festus or Canossus in Crete. The Cretan Epimenides. This is from his work, Cretica. So Paul knows this guy. And he quotes in the second half of the verse, For we are also his offspring. That comes from the Cilician poet Aratus. 
his hymn to Zeus. And of course, Paul was from Cilicia. Tarsus was in Cilicia. And so that might be why Paul knew this guy. I don't know. But Paul quotes from him very confidently. Or, in fact, he quoted orally while he's orally debating. He didn't have to go look it up. He had it in his head. And then in 1 Corinthians 15:33, for a third example of a quotation of a pagan by Paul, Paul says this, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Who is Paul quoting? Well, he's quoting Menander, the comic poet. His dates are 4th to 3rd century, a little bit fuzzy, but somewhere around there. And the quotation probably came from the Thais, T-H-A-I-S, of Menander. And, and Menander probably got the quotation from the great tragic playwright Euripides, according to the scholars. So we see that Paul was no dummy. He could stack footnotes up with the best pinhead intellectual. But he knew that he was quoting those pagans just to win the pagans over. He was not trying to affirm the truth of what the pagans said. After all, who was it that said, in him we live and move and have our being? That's from Epimenides of Crete. Epimenides was talking about Zeus. And of course, Paul was not trying to affirm the existence of Zeus. He was quoting the pagan literature to the advantage of Christ. That sh that should go without saying. John Gill points out that Paul could have filled his speech with flowery rhetoric if he had wanted to. Paul was no he was no dummy, but he knew how to use the things of the world to leverage those things in order to advance the gospel. He didn't succumb to them and start saying, "Oh wow, look at all the wisdom you have," like these people that follow philosophers. Verse 2 in 1 Corinthians 2, For I didn't think it was a good idea to know anything among you, Paul continues, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So there's your contrast. Jesus dying on the cross, that's what we're going to preach as opposed to Greek philosophy and rhetoric. Let's see how Paul emphasizes the preaching of Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 1, 17-18, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to evangelize, not with clever words, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. The cross of Christ. That's Jesus dying on the cross. That's Christ crucified. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's God's power to us who are being saved. If you look at the evangelism in the New Testament, they, the evangelist always mentioned, or I shouldn't say always, but in many, many times emphasized resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, and the cross of Christ. The crucifixion and the resurrection, those are the central focuses of foci, of the Christian faith. 1 Corinthians one twenty three. But we preach Christ crucified. That's the last chapter. Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews. And foolishness to the Gentiles. The Jews thinking a crucified Messiah is. We can't believe that. And so they stumble and lose salvation. And the Gentiles, the Greeks, just laugh at it. But Paul gloried in it. He, he gloried in the crucifixion of Christ. In contrast to his learned Greekified opponents. Who stumbled at the idea of a Messiah being a criminal. Now, Paul had an experimental and spiritual knowledge of Jesus, so he didn't need to preach anything else. He could have preached about a lot of stuff besides crucified Jesus, as John Gill points out. He could have. He could have filled his words with flowery rhetoric, but he knew Jesus, and that's all he needed to preach. We need to remember that if you feel a little intimidated when you're talking to these people that think they're hot shots. I recall Ray Comfort, a Ray Comfort YouTube video I saw, and he's witnessing some college professor. She was a biologist or something. I don't know. She was. She thought she was hot stuff, talking about evolution and all that. And so he just asked her a simple question, and it had something to do with the scriptures. I forgot what it was, and she gave the dumbest answer. I wish I could remember how dumb that answer was. I said, "Lady, you don't know what you're talking about." And that happens a lot of times. You know, these these experts, these college professors. I know because I've watched them all my life. I've been a college professor all my life. What they do is they get very learned in a very narrow area, and they think that because they know a lot in that narrow area, they know everything. And they can just bloviate, and it's amazing how easy you can take them down by asking a simple question. We go now to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Whoa, the Apostle Paul is weak, fearful, and trembling? Well, why did he say that? Well, here's some options. He was not impressive physically or bodily, as John Gill and Adam Clark say. His voice was contemptible, as we already know. Paul admits that later on in the book. He didn't exert his authority and power as an apostle, perhaps. That's why he was weak when he came there. He just said, hey, I'm just Brother Paul trying to teach you about Jesus. Or maybe it's because he wasn't rich and he wasn't supported. He wasn't donated. He worked with his own hands making a tent. And tents was a nasty job. Nasty because that stuff, the tanning of animal hides and all that, you know, just stunk. 
they had to they had to put those tannery refined establishments outside of the cities next to the water to get rid of the stench. And that's what Paul did. Why was he in fear? Because the work he was doing was such great importance. He was afraid the Corinthians would be drawn aside into error. I think that's true. John Gill, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point that out. John Gill speculates that maybe people were threatening Paul's life. I don't think so, but that's an interesting speculation. That would tend to make one fearful. But at any rate, Paul was in fear and in trembling, and this shows that even great apostles can have normal human emotions. I, I, I have to emphasize this because I have, when I used to be in the charismatic movement, I heard so many hyperfaith people say, Oh, you don't have any faith because you're scared. Where's your faith, brother? Well, you know, if, if I was more learned in the scriptures back then, I could have just said, Well, where was Paul's faith when he came to the Corinthians in fear? I remember a, a missionary guy who was somewhat had faith tendencies. In fact, the name of his his mission organization was Faith Training Center, and he was a good guy, a really good guy. He's he was old. He's gone to be with the Lord now. But I actually asked him one time something because I was scared. I was in the middle of a lot of trouble and things weren't going well, and and he was so confident about everything and all the churches he had established overseas, and he had he was training other missionaries to go overseas, and I was a nobody. And so I asked him about about how he had faith to do all this, and we got to talking about what did he feel like, because I always like to get to the under the surface of things, you know. And he said, oh, yeah, I was scared. He says, hey, I'm a human being. And I thought, well, you know, that, that, that really impressed me, because he was the first faith guy I ever heard to say that. Paul had faith, but he was a human being. I mean, you know, Jesus was about to go up on the cross. Did he have normal human emotions? He sweated blood, but he did it. He did in faith, he trusted God to do what God had called him to do, and that's what we have to do even when we're scared. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 through 5, Paul continues, My speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, i.e. like the Greek philosophers, but with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit, so that your faith might not be based on man's wisdom, but on God's power. So here Paul contrasts Greek rhetoric and philosophy, persuasive words of wisdom, he contrasts that with demonstration of the Spirit and God's power. Now, when Paul disses persuasive words of wisdom, that, of course, is no license for teachers of the Word of God to avoid study and preparation. Now, I'm a teacher. I spend hours and hours and hours and hours preparing these audios, for example, when I'm teaching a live crowd. You have to study, and it takes a long time. But I'm studying to know what the Scripture says. I'm, I'm like a gold miner looking for treasure in the mine. And that's what we have to do with the scripture. John Gwill's got that great, a great, well, I'm going to quote it to you in a minute, a great metaphor about the treasures of the word of God, but you've got to go down in the mine and dig for it. So, yeah, you've got to do all that, but teachers of the word don't study so that they can be persuasive with flowery rhetoric or with wise wisdom philosophy. They study to know what's in the word of God. Okay. So we've got to be careful not to abuse that. Oh, I'm not before you with persuasive words of wisdom. I'm just coming in there and say, I love Jesus. Hallelujah. It's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. I'm not going to teach you anything. But brother, I don't understand the scripture. Go in peace. Be warm and be filled. There's too much of that attitude, super spiritual attitude, anti-scriptural attitude in the body of Christ, in my humble opinion. Now remember, Paul could have used persuasive words. He could be eloquent, for example, at Morris Hill, you know, when he was debating those philosophers. He could, he could hold on with the best of them. But as the NIV Study Bible points out, Paul never divorced his learning from a heart experience of the Holy Spirit. So if you are a pinhead, nerd, intellectual listening to these audios, remember, do not think that your learning means amounts to a hill of bean unless you can use it to leverage the gospel when you're dealing with other fellow pinheads. So Paul never divorced his learning from a, his learning from a heart experience of the Holy Spirit. On the one hand, he never divorced his learning from working miracles, the demonstration by the Spirit. Well, let's talk about the demonstration by the Spirit. This would be signs, wonders, and miracles, as John Gill states and affirms. Jameson Fawcett Brown mentions that as an option, but he also says the powerful demonstration of the Spirit means the inward working on the heart. In other words. Paul powerfully demonstrates what the Spirit has done in his heart. I don't think that's what Paul meant at all. He's talking about working miracles. Notice the adjective powerful. I came to you with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit. Power, when you hear power, you tend to think miracle. John Gill says another powerful demonstration would be using solid proofs from the Old Testament to show that they were fulfilled in the New. Well, of course, that's not going to really impress the predominantly Gentile Corinthian church too much, I wouldn't think. 
And so I don't think that's what Paul meant. I think he meant when he said demonstration of powerful demonstration of the Spirit, he was talking about signs, wonders, and miracles. We go to 1 Corinthians 2, 6. Paul continues, however, we do speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. The however is to show a contrast between persuasive words of wisdom. We don't speak that. However, we do speak wisdom. Now, where is this wisdom spoken? Spoken among the mature, that means wise, developed Christians, mature Christians, as opposed to the immature Christians mentioned in 1 Corinthians 3.1 when we get to the fleshly Christians who are drinking the milk of the word rather than the meat of the word. Paul is trying to tell them, hey, 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 we, you know, if you're going to understand the wisdom of God, you've got to be mature. He doesn't just say you've got to be saved. You've got to be mature. And when you're mature, you will realize that this wisdom that Paul speaks is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but it's the wisdom of God. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 3.1, not the mature, but the babies. 1 Corinthians 3.1, brothers, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. So if you want to get the wisdom of God from an apostle who knows the wisdom of God, and now that's the scriptures, if you want to get wisdom from the scriptures, you better not be a babe in Christ. Who is the we? Paul says we speak. Well, that could be Paul and his fellow apostles. It could be we, the editorial we, referring to I singular. I tend to think it's Paul and his fellow apostles. Now, Paul disses the wisdom of this age and he says, he also disses the rulers of this age. He says, I'm not speaking wisdom among the rulers of this age. Who's he talking about? Well, maybe the Roman emperor. <laughs> What's a pitiful little Roman emperor compared to the gospel of Christ? They ain't got any wisdom. If you don't believe me, read their biographies. Bunch of idiots, most of them. Not all of them. I mean, Augustus Caesar was wise as far as his political administration of the Roman Empire. Claudius was a good works administrator, public works administrator. But what they have is nothing compared to the glories of the gospel of Christ. Read the Bible, read Roman biographies of emperors, and you'll see the difference. Now, when Paul says that he speaks wisdom among the mature, this is not a hidden wisdom separate from the gospel. Now, that's important to say that, you know, because the Gnostics, the famous heretics back then, were, were preaching knowledge, which is close to wisdom. Gnosis is knowledge. Paul's not teaching that. A lot of Jews and Gnostics were teaching esoteric things, things that are hidden from the world, and hidden from everybody, and only the Gnostic teacher can tell you. And Paul's not doing that. He's not saying, I have wisdom that only I know and nobody else does. No, he's speaking of wisdom that was revealed through the Scriptures and revealed through the through the life of Jesus Christ, and he was out there openly proclaiming it. He was not trying to hide it from people. He was talking about secret things of the gospel that worldly people are not going to see unless they open their minds to it. He's not trying to hide anything like the Gnostics were. 1 Corinthians 2, 7, he, he continues that idea here in verse 7. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages of before the ages for our glory. Now, on the contrary, it means contrary to those persuasive words of wisdom that the Greek philosophers are teaching. Opposed to that, we're speaking God's hidden wisdom. And as I said, it's hidden to people who are not spiritual. But it is not hidden to people who are spiritual and who are willing to go dig for it. He says that this hidden wisdom was a mystery. Now, the mystery religious use that term mystery in the sense of this is a mystery that nobody but the initiated can get to. You've got to go through all these rituals. You've got to talk to the gurus, and maybe they'll let you know something. Paul changed that word. It used to mean esoteric, never to be revealed unless you participated in the rites of the mystery religion. But now it meant something that was once hidden but is now revealed. So when Paul speaks of the mystery, it's no longer a mystery because he's speaking of it. We speak it. Well, as soon as you speak something, guess what? It's not a secret anymore, is it? Here's how Paul used mystery in other places. Romans 16, verses 25 through 26. Now to him who has power to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery. The mystery has been revealed. It's not a mystery anymore. Kept silent for long ages, but now revealed, is not hidden anymore, and made known. How? Through the prophetic scriptures. So if you dig through the scriptures, you'll find some hidden wisdom, which was hidden before, for ages past, but is no longer hidden, but is now revealed. Ephesians 3, 4 through 5, by reading this, you were able to understand my insight about the mystery of the Messiah. Yeah, the Messiah was hidden to the world until the Messiah came, until the apostles started preaching the gospel. This was not made known to people in other generations, and it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Revealed. Not hidden anymore. 
1 Timothy 3.16, and most certainly the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, flesh. That means shown. That means openly revealed so everybody could see it. All right, so this is a different kind of mystery now. It's a history that can be found not by worldly wisdom, but by the scriptures and the words of the apostles. God predestined this mystery before the ages. There are options for that is before the world was created, before time, before, in other words, through all eternity. Jameson Fawcett and Brown holds to that view. Adam Clark, or suggests that view, Adam Clark suggests is before the settling of the Jewish economy. The phrase often means this, he says. The, the When you say age, it often does mean the Jewish economy. So he could say the wisdom which was predestined before the Jewish age. I've got no problem with that. It doesn't really matter. But whenever it was, was it before the Jewish age or before whether it was wisdom that existed before all time, that wisdom pre, predated the wisdom of the Greeks the wisdom of the of the ancient world. So Paul's showing the superior worth of God's wisdom. And again, he says, we preach that wisdom again. That's Paul and Apollos and other preachers, or maybe it's the editorial we, or it could be Paul and his fellow apostles. It doesn't really matter. Let's talk about this idea of the, of the gospel being wisdom that was hidden and now revealed. Let me give you a good quote on that word hidden. Quote by John Gill, quote, the gospel lay hid in God in the thoughts of his heart, in the deep things of his mind, the counsels of his will and purposes of his grace. It was hid in Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It was hid under the types and shadows of the ceremonial law and is hid in the scriptures, which must be diligently searched for it as for hidden treasures. It was hid from angels and from Adam until revealed. It was in some measure hid from the Jews under the former dispensation to whom it was made known and in some sense from believers under the present dispensation, who as yet know it but in part, and is entirely hid from natural men, even from the most wise and prudent among them. This epithet expresses the preciousness, secrecy, and also security of the gospel, hidden things being commonly of value, and being kept secret are also safe. Hidden and secret wisdom has been always esteemed both by Greeks and Jews. That's a great quote. Notice that. The metaphor he uses, it's like gold is hidden in a, or treasure is hidden in a mine. you got to go dig for it. There's treasure in the scriptures. you got to go dig. And there's so many Christians today who, oh, I don't read my Bible. I haven't read it in a week. Well, you think those people are going to grow spiritually? You think they're going to know anything about the hidden mysteries of God that's been revealed in the scriptures? Do you think, though, if they're too busy sitting around chasing money or chasing women or whatever else they're chasing... I don't mean chasing women immorally. I mean, you know, trying to find a, a, a girlfriend, not making a living and finding a girlfriend is not important. It is important, but what's more important? If you, find, if you seek the wisdom of God, God will take care of your money problems and your girlfriend problems or your boyfriend problems. Hidden wisdom. There are many mysteries in the gospel which cannot be detected by human reason. And here's some examples that John Gill gives. For example, trinity of persons in the divine essence the mystery of christ of his person as god manifest in the flesh christ's divine sonship his incarnation in the womb of a virgin the mystery of the spirit's grace in regeneration the saints union to christ and communion with him the resurrection of the same body the damage of living the, excuse me the change of living saints at christ's coming you're not going to get that in greek philosophy folks you're only going to get that in the scriptures one last point in this verse, this hidden wisdom is now spoken by Paul. This wisdom was predestined. In other words, God already had it in his mind to do it for the world's even made or before the Jewish economy, whichever. And the reason he predestined it, this wisdom to be revealed was for our glory. Now, that's interesting. Sure, it was predestined for God's glory. We know that, but also for our glory, which means that God shares his glory with his church. The meek who will inherit the world. It's not only God that gets the glory for the plan of mankind's salvation. We also get to share in that glory, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Here's a good scripture that proves that, Romans 8, 17. And if children, if we Christians are children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Remember, after suffering comes glorification. Jesus suffered. Three days later, he was glorified. He is our example. We are in him. We suffer in this life, but eventually we're going to be glorified with him because of that hidden plan of salvation, the hidden wisdom, the mystery which is now revealed. We go to verse 8, 1 Corinthians 2. 
None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, let's look at that term, rulers of this age. Here are some options. It could refer to political rulers, either Jewish or Roman, or Jewish and Roman. For example, the Jewish chief priest could be involved in a study Bible suggest that John Gill and Adam Clark affirm that that Paul is talking about the Jewish rulers of this age Luke 24:20 says this and how our chief priest and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him and Paul in verse 8 for 1 Corinthians 2 says none of the rulers of this age the rulers of this age would not have crucified the Lord of glory if they had been wise they would not have crucified the Lord of glory so the crucifying the Lord of glory makes sense to, to apply to the Jewish rulers of this age. However, we also know the Romans participated in that crucifixion of the Lord of glory. Pilate, Herod, Antipas were the two. Gil denies that, but I don't know. NIV Study Bible says it could be referring to the Romans too, those stupid ro- rulers who crucified the Lord of glory. Acts 4, verse 27. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, Herod being the Jew and Pontius Pilate being the Roman, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, they assembled together to kill him. All right, so it's either uh, the Jews of this age crucified the Lord of glory. That would be the Jews and the Romans. I think that's what it is. Some other people, some other suggestions. Here's a Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown suggestion that the rules of this age are demons. Now, if the demons, the rules of this age, if the demons knew this wisdom, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I think that's, I'm going to say nutty, but it's it's way out there. I don't believe that. The verse that Jameson, Foster, and Brown quote to back that up is Ephesians 2.2, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercised authority over the Lord or heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. That would be the devil. No, 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 no. The demons, no, no, that doesn't make sense. Or it could be the religious rulers of the Jews. Option number three, this is Adam Clark. By spirit of the world, he here means Jewish wisdom, says Clark, or their carnal mode of interpreting the sacred oracles and their carnal expectation of a worldly kingdom under the Messiah. So the the religious rulers crucified him. Well, okay, but religious and political rulers being Jewish, they work together hand in hand. I wouldn't split them out. So I would just, just, just say the Jewish rulers and the Roman rulers. Jewish rulers, whether political or religious, Roman rulers, they killed Jesus. Now, the whole point of this is, if they were so smart, why would they do something so stupid? Why would they be so do something so stupid? They obviously didn't know the wisdom of God, that God had sent the Messiah. So they killed the Son of God. Think about that. There has never been a crime on earth worse than that. Never. That shows just how intelligent the wisdom of the world is, to kill, to kill the Son of God. When Paul refers to the Lord of glory, the reference seems to be to Psalm verse, chapter 24, verse 7. Which reads this, lift up your heads, you gates, rise up ancient doors, then the king of glory will come in. I'm assuming that's when Jesus went into Jerusalem, the king of glory. Now, one little minor theological point here. Paul refers to the Lord of glory being crucified. Well, no, wait a minute. How can you crucify a divine God? He's the Lord of glory. That means he's divine. But then you crucify him? How can you crucify God? Well, this is what the theologians call the communication of the attributes. Jesus' human nature was crucified, but his human nature communicated in the attribute of divinity. So then Jesus is described in terms of his divine nature as well as his human nature. So his human nature was crucified, but his divine nature lives on forever, always has lived and always will live. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 through 11. But as it is written, what eye did not see and ear did not hear, and what never entered the human mind, God prepared this for those who love him. Let me just stop right there on verse 9. It was written, written where? Isaiah 64, 4. From ancient times, no one has heard, no one has listened, no eye has seen any God except you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. Now, that's not an exact verbatim quote, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown points out, but Paul often did that. He, he quoted loosely. So, basically, Paul is saying, man, nobody can imagine. It never entered the human mind, especially those Greek philosophical minds, but God has prepared for those who love him. Now, when I read that verse... I traditionally or typically have taken it to mean what happens, what God has prepared for us in glory after we die. And I'm sure that's true. The NIV Study Bible, however, says that probably refers to both present and future blessings. Adam Clark says it's the present world only. The human mind has not thought about what God has prepared for for us with regard to our salvation in the present world. 
And he, Adam Clark quotes that has revealed in verse 10. Now, God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit. Well, that's a good point. Has revealed. Clark says this, quote, This is manifest proof that the apostle speaks here of the glories of the gospel and not of the glories of the future world. Well, maybe so, but, but God could have revealed in the past the scriptures which talk about eternal life. And I mean, didn't Jesus say, In my Father's house there are many mansions? I mean, he talked about what it was like up there every now and then. So, the new heavens and the new earth, I guess you could talk about in the end of Revelation, the final state. So anyway, I think he's talking about the present and the future. And I don't think it makes a big deal either way because the human mind can't understand it. You have to understand, you have to go dig in the mind for spiritual treasures and you have to have a mind illuminated by the Holy Spirit. And you ain't going to understand nothing about your inheritance. Now we go to verse 10. Now God has revealed these things, the things that, I, that the human eye cannot see and the human ear cannot hear and the human mind has no acquaintance with. Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit. Notice the revealed. It's no longer a mystery. It's revealed. How? By the Holy Spirit. Not by the mind now. Not by the unaided human mind, but by the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now when I say that I need to be careful, not by the mind, I mean by the unaided human mind. Obviously the Holy Spirit works on our mind. We're not, we're not zombies, the Holy Spirit working through us. Our mind doesn't cease to work when we grasp the truths of revelation but it's the unaided human mind that can't know anything but we have to be illuminated by the spirit for the spirit searches everything even the depths of god and that doesn't mean the spirit it goes around the holy spirit goes to god the father says god the father i don't understand something could you tell me i'm looking for something of course not of course not the holy spirit knows everything already what it means is the spirit has gone into every nook and cranny of the godhead and so metaphorically speaking knows everything he searches everything. That means he's been everywhere. He's gone everywhere. Every, as I say, every nook and cranny of the Godhead. He even gone down into the depths of God, into God's innermost meaning. So the Spirit knows everything that God the Father knows. Now what Paul's point here is, if the Holy Spirit knows everything, that if the third person of the Trinity knows everything that the first person of the Trinity knows, and the third person of the Trinity lives in you as Christian, guess what? You have access to that knowledge now. And the pagan philosophers don't. He goes on with that idea in verse 11. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man that is in him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. He, Paul makes an analogy. Our spirit knows our thoughts because the innermost part of our being. If your mind thinks something, you, your spirit's going to know it too. Again, you got to go through the dichotomy, trichotomy thing. I'm a, let's say I'm a trichotomist right now for the sake of argument. So our spirit is within us. And since our spirit is in us and our mind is in us, when our mind thinks something, the spirit's going to know it. Likewise, that's the analogy between the spirit and the mind or the thoughts of a man. There's, they're so close together because they're within us. Likewise, the Holy Spirit of Christ and God the Father are so close together because they're in the same Godhead. They know what each other's thinking. So, in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So, in other words, the Holy Spirit knows what God the Father is thinking. And guess what? And this is what Paul's main point is. Guess where that Holy Spirit resides now? In you believers. That's how you're going to know the secret things of God, the hidden wisdom, the hidden mysteries of God, because the Holy Spirit lives in you. And again, it's not the Holy Spirit absent from the Word. It's both the Holy Spirit and the Word. And it's not the mind operating without the human spirit or without the Holy Spirit. It's the mind working illuminated by the Holy Spirit. As it's illuminated, the Spirit illuminates the Word. I emphasize that because there's so much dichotomy in the body of Christ. We've got to rely on the Spirit only, and the mind is stupid. On the other hand, you've got these people who go around, act like the Holy Spirit is the last thing on their mind. We've got to reason it out and use our minds to figure out what the Scripture says. No, those are two extremes of a unfortunate dichotomy we go now to first corinthians 2 verse 12 now we have not received the spirit of the world the we there of course is christians we christians have not received the spirit of the world but the spirit the little s spirit of the world but the capital s spirit who comes from god that's the way the home of christian study bible does the capitalization there we have not received the spirit little s spirit of the world but the capital s spirit holy spirit who comes from god so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by god and again that's my, what i just said in the last verse that's what paul's point is the holy spirit knows everything that god the father knows and that holy spirit lives in you and has been freely given to us by god guess what you're going to have all the knowledge you need for your salvation we can understand what has been freely given to us by god 
freely means without price. We didn't pay for it. God just decided because of his grace and mercy to let you be filled with his Holy Spirit so you can understand things about God. Now, Paul says we have not received the spirit of the world. Here's some options. Option A, the attitude of sinful men. This is the NIV Study Bible suggestion. We have not received that rebellious, prideful, philosophical attitude of the Greeks. The NIV Study Bible quotes Romans 8, 6 through 7 to show this. For the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. For the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it, it does not submit itself to God's law, for it is unable to do so. That's the spirit of the world, the mindset of the flesh. John Gill says the spirit of the attitude of sinful men is, quote, a spirit of covetousness, uncleanness, pride, malice, and error, as well as a spirit which values carnal wisdom. I think that comes closest to it, the spirit of the world. If you go by the context, Paul is talking about all these Greek philosophers who are trying to find out who God is, like Aristotle. That's the way the world tries to figure out God, the unmoved mover, and all that kind of nonsense. Another option, this is from John Gill, suggests that the spirit of the world is talking about the devil because the devil is the ruler of the prince of the power of this air. But we have not received the devil, but the Holy Spirit. Well, it's true, but I don't think that's what Paul means. I said earlier, we have not received the spirit of the world, the attitude, the fleshly attitude of the world. Oh, here's another option. I'm sorry. The spirit of the world could be Jewish teachers who are looking for a worldly kingdom and a worldly Messiah rather than the kingdom of Christ. This is Adam Clark's idea. Well, yeah, except Paul's mainly writing to Gentiles. I don't know why he would be emphasizing that. I think he's talking about the spirit of the philosophers, the Gentiles. We haven't received that attitude, that spirit. Now, the we there, I said it was we Christians. It actually could, it's, I think it is that. But another option is, is it's talking about the genuine apostles of Christ, as Adam Clark says. Now, we apostles have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit, so you better listen to us. Well, that's possible, but I don't think that's what Paul meant. I think he says we all have received the spirit of the Holy Spirit, and so we can know the deep things of God. 1 Corinthians 2.13, we also speak these things, these hidden things of the form of mystery, which has now been revealed. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. Now, the NIV has, instead of explaining, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The NIV note says, or marginal note says, it could be read this way. We have been we're teaching those things taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to spiritual men, which sounds like expressing or explaining to me. That's not much different if you ask me. Jameson Fawcett and Brown said that explaining spiritual things to spiritual people means comparing Old Testament Scripture with the gospel of Jesus. So we explain the Old Testament to us spiritual Christians. I don't think so. Although, I mean, I don't deny that that was, could be true, but I don't think that's what Paul was getting at here. Now, I like that in words taught by human wisdom. Let's see. In words taught by the Spirit, the NIV has spiritual words. That means spir spiritual words means words, or it could mean spiritual words which have their origin in the Spirit. And so the Holman Christian Study Bible translates it as in those words taught by the Spirit. And I think that gets the idea better across that the words that Paul speaks have their origin by the Holy Spirit. He's prompted by the Holy Spirit to speak these things. Spiritual words is kind of fuzzy and ambiguous. What's a spiritual word? Well, it, what it means is a word that comes from the Holy Spirit. So we speak these words not in words coming from the flesh, coming from human wisdom, but we speak the words coming from the Holy Spirit. And we explain these words coming from the Holy Spirit to spiritual people. In other words, not to baby carnal Christians, as in 1 Corinthians 3, but to people who are led by the Spirit, you Corinthian Christians who ought to be listening to me. And the implication is, if you go understand the words of Christ, you need to be spiritual. You need to have a mind that's illuminated by the Spirit, or you're not going to understand anything. You're going to be just as dumb as the Greek philosophers are. If you're going to go out and have sex with your stepmother, if you're going to end up abusing the Lord's Supper, getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, if you're going to fail to exercise church discipline, if you're going to divide the church up into all kinds of factions, guess what? You ain't going to understand the spiritual words I'm teaching you. And I have, I have no doubt that that's what he's talking about. He's trying to appeal to their, their higher nature, their new man in Christ, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, as he's trying to teach them, because he's getting ready to unload on them in the next chapter. I said these things were the things hidden in the mystery. They were also described as the, thing which, the things which eye has not seen nor ear heard. That's what he's speaking. Let me give a quote from Adam Clark to talk about words taught by the Spirit as opposed to words taught in, by human wisdom. Quote, 
we dare no more use the language of the Jews and the Gentiles in speaking of these glorious of those glorious things than we can indulge their spirit. The Greek orators affected a high and florid language, full of tropes and figures, which dazzled more than it enlightened. The rabbis affected obscurity and were studious to find out cabalistical meanings, which had no tendency to make the people wise unto salvation. The apostles could not follow any of these. They spoke the things of God in the words of God. Everything was plain and intelligible, every word well-placed, clear. He who has a spiritual mind will easily comprehend an apostle's preaching. Hear, hear, Adam Clark. That's a good quote. Now, notice that Paul is talking about spiritual people here. Again, is he talking about the Corinthians? I think he's talking about the Corinthians the way they ought to be rather than the way they actually were. So he's kind of speaking hypothetically. Because in 1 Corinthians 3.1, the very next chapter, he says, Brothers, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people. In 1 Corinthians 2.13, he says that God explains, excuse me, the apostles, he, the apostle, explains spiritual things to spiritual people. I'm explaining the wisdom, the hidden wisdom of God to spiritual people. But in chapter 3, verse 1, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babes in Christ. So I think he's appealing to their higher nature, which they're not living up to, because I really don't think that people who are living like hell, Christians, who decide to, either because they're uninstructed and haven't grown yet, whose progressive sanctification is the very bottom of the chart, I don't think they're going to understand the deep hidden things of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2.14, but the unbeliever does not welcome what comes from God's spirit. Oh, but doesn't that say unbeliever? Oh, that sounds like it just cuts against what I said about carnal Christians not knowing what comes from God's spirit. Well, I'm going to point out in just a minute that the translation for unbeliever is, in the NIV, the man without the spirit. And there's a split of opinion as whether this is talking about the unregenerate person or the fleshly Christian. Verse 14, 1 Corinthians 2, let me start over. But the unbeliever does not welcome what comes from God's spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it, it's evaluated spiritually. Well, there's no question. I mean, this is true if Paul is referring to a, an unregenerate, unbelieving person here. It's true. They'll never understand anything spiritually. Jude 1.19 says this. These people create divisions and are unbelievers not having the spirit. Unbelievers not having the spirit. Romans 8.9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, since the spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You don't have the Spirit of Christ, then you don't belong to him. You're an unbeliever. John Gill summarizes this view that Paul is talking about unbelievers not knowing God's Spirit and the things of God's Spirit. Here's what Gill says, quote, Not a babe in Christ, one that is newly born again, for though such have but little knowledge of spiritual things, yet they have a taste and do relish and desire and receive the sincere milk of the word and grow thereby. But, Paul is referring here to an unregenerate man. The other option, mentioned by the NIV Study Bible, and I think affirmed by them, if I remember correctly, it refers to immature Christians, baby Christians. The baby Christian does not welcome what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. And then, to quote that, of course, you can go to verses 1 through 4, 1 Corinthians 3, which is pretty close in the context. Brothers, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babes in Christ. He calls them brothers. That means they're Christians, but they're, but they're babies in Christ. Now, I will say there is a rip-roaring controversy about can there be a carnal Christian. Reformed people bring this up all the time, or the Lordship Salvation people, and, and, and of course what they're reacting against is people looking at non-believing, non-believers who are acting like hell and saying, see, they're a Christian because they raised their hand in a kumbaya meeting when they were 10 years old. Well, obviously, that's an extreme, but to react against that extreme and say that if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be perfectly sanctified and you're never going to have a sin anywhere, uh, I don't go with that. I mean, Paul says right here, brothers, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. That means carnal. People of the flesh is carnal as babies in Christ. So those babies in Christ were carnal Christians. But anyway, we'll get into that controversy in the next chapter. I can't wait. So that So this is kind of a prelude to that controversy. What is Paul talking about here? Well, let me just say to get past the controversy is that unbelievers act like carnal Christians. They don't understand what God's trying to tell them. So I don't really get too wired up about this. I, you know, the, the bottom line is if you want to understand God, you can't live outside of God's spirit, which means you can't live in sin. You've got to have God to crucify your sinful mind, open it up, give you the mind of Christ, whether you are 
baby Christian or whether you're an unbeliever. You've got to have that done. By the way, that word unbeliever there is sukos, the Greek. A sukikos is the genitive. Sukikos. Jameson Fawcett, uh, excuse me, Adam Clark says about that word, quote, this refers to the, quote, the animal man, the man who is in a mere state of nature and lives under the influence of his animal passions, for the word suke, which we often translate soul, means the lower and sensitive part of man in opposition to noose, the understanding or rational part. So I think Watchman, he translate. he's a tripartite guy, he trans, a trichotomist, he translates that as the soulish man does not welcome what comes from God's spirit. Well, I'm not going to get into all of that. Basically, it means you got to have the spirit if you go understand God. I mean, it's bottom line. That's what it comes down to. Here's an analogy. This is my analogy. A dog or a cat can look at the world and intellectually process it, but he doesn't really understand the world. He thinks he does. I mean, every cat I ever had thought he knew everything, or he or she knew everything. They didn't know nothing. All they could think about was finding a warm spot and curling up in it and sleeping 18 out of 24 hours a day. And then... When the sun went down, then they find you when you're sleeping and curl up on you just to stay warm. That's all they care about. Or food. That and food. They didn't understand what was going on out there. All this stuff. All this political and intellectual stuff going on. They were absolutely clueless. And that, my friends, is how people are who don't have the Spirit of Christ. They are clueless about what's going on in the kingdom of God. Verse They are clueless. And in fact, if they, they ever hear about things going on in the kingdom of God... It's foolishness to them. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.20, where's the philosopher? Where's the scholar? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? Yes, sir, they think it's foolish, but they're the ones that are the doom coughs. 1 Corinthians 2.15, the spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything, yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. The spiritual person, of course, is the mature, as the NIV study Bible puts it the spiritual person led by the holy spirit i'm assuming this is talking about not baby christians but but spiritual christians who are understanding the things of the spirit they can evaluate everything that doesn't mean they know everything in the world otherwise they'd be god it means they can evaluate everything pertaining to salvation and sanctification but that person that spiritual person cannot be evaluated by anyone that means not by anyone outside the body of christ who does not have the spirit we got to be careful that does not mean that the christian when he's the, that uh, a, a, a spiritual person, a Christian, cannot go around and say, and say, Paul says we can't be evaluated by anyone, so don't criticize me, my fellow Christian. That is nonsense. That's not what the verse says. The verse means that you can't be evaluated on spiritual matters by somebody not in the body of Christ. But somebody in the body of Christ? Well, that's a different story, my friends. A spiritual person still needs the checks and balances of the body of Christ. Here's some good Scriptures to show that non-believers cannot evaluate believers, cannot judge whether believers are right or wrong. Proverbs 28.5, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand everything. Those who seek the Lord understand everything. That doesn't mean that we're God. It just means we understand everything that's necessary for justice. But evil men don't understand justice. 1 John 2.27, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, just as he has taught you, remain in him. Again, the anointing is the Holy Spirit, which Paul has been talking about here in 1 Corinthians 2. John, in 1 John 2, says the same thing. The anointing teaches you everything you need to know, which means we don't need a false teacher. John was worried about these Gnostics and Docetists and all, these false teachers teaching, trying to teach the his uh, the people he was writing to, the church members he was writing to. But now, John did not mean that you don't need teachers. Obviously, otherwise, what did Paul mean about the gifts of the Spirit? One of the gifts of the Spirit is teachers. 1 Corinthians 12, I think in Ephesians, Romans 14. Well, you know, teachers. We're going to say we don't need teachers? You have you don't need anyone to teach you? We don't need Christian teachers? No, it means anyone outside the body of Christ to teach you. You don't need that. 1 Corinthians 2.16, we'll finish the chapter up. Paul says this, For who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now the who there, who has known the Lord's mind, he's referring to non-Christian worldly people here. Although it's also true that Christians have no busy instructing the Lord on anything. That goes without saying, but, but Paul is referring here to non-Christians. What? Why do these Greek philosophers have gotten to know anything about God's mind? How can, how can they instruct God about anything? They're being arrogant. But we have the mind of Christ, and the implication is we can know the Lord's mind because we have the mind of Christ. That doesn't mean we can instruct God, but it means we can be instructed by him, and we have the mind of Christ. Paul here in this verse is either alluding to or quoting Isaiah 40, verse 13. 
which says this, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Who, who gave him his counsel? Nobody tells God anything. And so these philosophers who think they know everything, they don't know anything. They can't tell anything about God. I remember the best example of arrogance. There was a, when I was going to law school, I had a friend of mine who was a fighter pilot who was in my contracts class, and he had another class, a UCC class, a Uniform Commercial Code class. And he went into that class, and the guy was a well-known atheist. And the guy stands up, and, you know, atheists, they just can't keep it to themselves, you know. They don't want Christians to preach in class, but by golly, they could preach atheism in class. So this guy gets up in front of the class, and he's big class, you know, these amp- semi-amphitheater-type rooms, big, big classes, 100 people in there probably. And he gets up, and he, gets up and he says, if God exists, why don't, why don't you just tell him to n- knock this table down? No sooner had the man, the atheist, got the words out of his mouth, the table collapsed in front of him, in front of all those speechless students. And my fighter pilot friend, who was not a Christian, but he knew I was, he came in there and his eyes were big as saucers. He says, Dan, you'll never believe what just happened. I never forgot that story. I said, ooh, I wish I could have been in there to see it. Yeah, you know, don't play with God. You're not going to instruct him on anything, atheist. You're a fool. Why does the Bible say the fool in his heart says that there's no God? Because they're fools, that's why. They're absolute fools. All right, when Paul says we have the mind of Christ, that's the good news. We don't have to be like the pagans, the fools, the atheists, the Greek philosophers. We have the mind of Christ, and of course, that's because the Holy Spirit searches the deep things of God, and we have the Holy Spirit. Of course, the, whole, the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit is, the, is also called the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Christ. We have that. He lives in us. So, since we have the mind of Christ, logically, no natural, unspiritual, carnal, or fleshly man has anything to say to us. And that's why I snort at all these people who sneer at Christ in the universities where I unfortunately had to spend most of my working life. I just don't pay any attention. I don't care what they say because they're fools or they're fools about spiritual things. Now, Paul says we have the mind of Christ. No, that's we corporately, not individually. We have the mind of Christ. We don't want to say, hey, I don't need anybody to teach me. I don't need any of my Christian brothers to teach me. Paul is not talking about that. He says we. That means we as Christians We don't want solo scriptura. We want sola scriptura. We don't want to be sitting around in a room by ourselves, not going to church, not talking to any other Christian and saying, I'm the spirit of Christ has revealed the mind of Christ to me, and I know the answer. That's where cults get started. That's solo scriptura. The Bible and me alone. No, it's sola scriptura, the scripture alone, but me with my brothers and sisters. We have the mind of Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, I am finished now with... 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We will turn to chapter 3 in our next audio, and we will take up that thorny question of carnal Christianity, what is it, does it exist, and so forth. And Paul will get back to his theme of divisions in the Corinthian church and how they need to be healed. Hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.